need to do a shout out, and you may disagree, but I, I wouldn't be the first time, won't be the last. Zelensky has shown an amazing amount of leadership and an ability to keep his country together in the face of being a target, I am sure, for the Russian military and KGB and everything else. First of all, I admired him standing up to Trump a couple of years ago, and I admire the way he has tried to lead his people in the face of, of the challenges that they're dealing with. I agree, totally agree with you. He, he's going to come out of this a, a hero, dead or alive. Yeah, and, um, and hopefully alive because they need his motivation. He is, I, he, he may be more effective as a martyr, but that's not what would be optimal. I understand, but I totally agree. And I, I think he has the, the visage and support of the world. However, yeah, yeah. there are other, as I said, geopolitical concerns about just coming to his aid. Right now, Putin is embroiled in this mess. And so I think all he's trying to do is he wants to wipe out the Ukrainian Air Force. He wants to, he wants to knock back the uh, Ukrainian military. And I think they're fighting a smart battle. Instead of taking on a superior force in traditional battles, essentially, they started with a guerrilla warfare approach, and they can last a lot longer that way. So this is going to be a lot like Afghanistan, except that it's not going to be in the mountains. It's going to be in the cities. If we blindly just jump in and say, we're your friends, and this is what we're going to do, then we could create a whole nother power shift that I'm not sure we're prepared for. Welcome to Peter and Phil's Courageous Conversations, a podcast addressing race relations and social issues in hopes that you'll be inspired to do the same. Now, let's begin our conversation with your hosts, Dr. Peter Weinstein and Dr. Philip Nelson. Well, what do we want to talk about today? I don't know. Life? Yeah. Life is exhausting these days. To try to recover from the pandemic and the uncertainty that's there, and now this three weeks of battling in Ukraine and constant nagging of the world, that's just tough right now. I'm just, I think this whole world of uncertainty is really exhausting to me. You are a very resilient man if you just got, if you just became exhausted. No, I'm, I'm working out every day to keep my um, stamina going since next week I speak for 14 hours, seven hours a day for two consecutive days. So have you been following the uh, primary elections that have been occurring around the country? Are they elections or are they just a, um, blocking the average person be, from being able to vote? Well, did it actually have an impact? I guess those were primaries, so we won't really know until there are elections in the fall. But since since they were directed from that standpoint, I would um, I would say that I'm just very concerned about what kind of control prior president still has over the electoral process. Yeah, me too. I'm more concerned about the impact it has on individual voters. Yeah, and then there's the secondary concern about just how far will uh, the legislatures take in some of these states will take umbrage with any outcome for, by any voting commission and will they actually re replace them? I mean, 
I know I have to be patient. You remind me that all of the time. And I know that I have said this, we haven't made a lot of progress since 1965 or 1619 for that matter. But these types of things just to me are like rewinding the tape. It may not be Jim Crow and it may not be um, count the number of marbles in the jar, but it feels the same way. Well, it should. You seem to conflate impatience with recognition of reality. The very fact that tape can be rewind means there's, there's been progress. Touche. Well put. Can I quote you on that? Of course. That still doesn't mean that we should be, that we should understand how slow the wheels of justice turn. It doesn't mean how, that we shouldn't understand human behavior and how slow hearts may change. And it definitely doesn't mean uh, 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 that we can ignore um, uh, the, pen, the tenets of persuasiveness. When we participate in difficult conversations, sometimes we create un unintended consequences by expressing inappropriate anger or expressing our viewpoints in ways that appear to be threatening or allowing our opponents, whoever they may be, to take advantage of cancel culture and to uh, purposefully misrepresent our message or one's message in order to promote their own. The adoption of wokeness as a weapon rather than a, a description of awareness is a classic example. A misinterpretation of Black Lives Matter is used by certain groups, you know, where um, the intent was, was that the record indicates the record of interactions between the police and African-Americans support the fact that Black lives don't seem to matter as much as others when the statistics show that they die at an alarming rate compared to other demographics. So some people hear only Black lives matter when they hear Black lives matter instead of hearing Black lives also matter. Well, you segued with that nicely during our live event when the... the uh screen kind of changed to veterinary lives matter. And uh, you acknowledge the fact that, that you didn't take umbrage in um, using the, that terminology in, in contrast to, you know, that Black Lives Matter wasn't the exclusive um, source for lives mattering. So I think this is part of that conversation. The other, the interesting thing to me is, is this, the whole thing with Ukraine is a distraction from a lot of the internal things that we need to be focusing on, whether it's infrastructure, voting rights, et cetera, that allows or prevents us from moving forward internally because we're so distracted by things going on externally. It's, it's like David Copperfield making the pyramids disappear by getting you to look somewhere else. Yeah, well, I think sometimes you have to look somewhere else. First of all, sometimes you realize how big your neighborhood really is. Mm -hmm. And as long as there isn't a bigger fire, then we'll deal with ours. We'll deal with our small fires. But this fire is affecting us in 
so many different ways, ethically, morally, economically. You know, we've always had this discussion that even during the last administration, we were concerned about Putin pulling the string. He, he came closer to controlling the U.S. economy than anybody ever has ever gotten. And he, he still is providing, he still has a, a significant influence on U.S. politics, much more of an influence than he should, he should have being our uh, historical adversary and definitely being, having shown the type of man he truly is by his attack on Ukraine. He is our modern uh, Hitler, our modern Stalin, which he truly wants to be, by the way, the modern Stalin. And everybody understands the culpability of America in allowing this. We've encouraged countries to become democratic nations. We've promoted it. We've pushed for it. Ukraine didn't move as far as they could have to join NATO, but largely because of their proximity to Russia and the fact that they just recently, in the last 10 years, elected a pro-democratic government. You know, that was the real breakaway. And that's what this war is really about. The question now for us is, how much are we willing to sacrifice for democracy? How much are we willing to defend it? This is a democratic, this is a democratic autocratic battle that went so far that January 6th was part of that battle, in, in my opinion. It revealed the internal scars that have occurred that were going unnoticed because they were being hidden by our internal discussions. They were essentially camouflaging a more virulent, more dangerous undermining of democratic principles. And these legislative changes that, we, that we've seen that occur to occur in 32 states further restricts, further restricts voting rights under the guise of fairness, <laughs> under the guise of fixing something that wasn't broken, uh, which only results in uh, uh, a limitation of voting to the proletariat rather than to the uh, uh, broad citizenry, which is pur purposeful and, and which can't be read any other way. It's a step toward communism. It's a step toward dictatorship. And when the former president accuses an illegitimate election and yet can't prove any significantly different outcomes in any of the states, he just wants his 13,000 votes back, that, you know, in Georgia, that he needs to have, to have won. Those are the kind of twisted arguments that become survivable in an atmosphere of condolescence. So here's an interesting dilemma, states' rights. Congress has a bill in front of it, the John Lewis bill, if I'm not incorrect, that has to do with voting rights on a national level. They also have an infrastructure bill that needs to be stronger. If you look at it from, does it make sense? Is it beneficial to the global aspects of the United States? The infrastructure bill, as well as the voting rights bill, makes complete sense, don't they? Yeah. But because of political divides, common sense and what's right or wrong doesn't seem to be able to get the necessary votes. So... When did you make this startling discovery? 
some months ago, but we just, <laughs> it, it hadn't come to the fore. It's, it goes, again, it goes back to some of the discussions we've had about term limits and, and everything else. But, and now here we have discussions going on at the congressional level that are different than at the presidential level on how aggressive to be with the Ukrainian battles. And, you know, this, the, the, the discussion of, of the fighter planes going from Poland to the Ukraine and the United States stepping in and saying it doesn't make any sense. And it's like, uh, I mean, I'm not sure where some of these decisions are currently being made. I know there, a lot of them are being made to avoid the World War III scenario that keeps being bantered about, but um, it's just, I find it so difficult to, uh, I shouldn't say it's so difficult. It's just, it's, it's not getting any better in terms of, of narrowing divides and look, and working towards the greater good. So Biden has a dilemma. First of all, we're where we are because of the actions of past presidents and past state departments. And we have to include the actions of Trump, Obama, and Bush. That's probably as far as anybody can remember, if anybody can remember what they did in Ukraine. But the minute we let the minute we let Russia take Crimea, we essentially reestablished the World War II uh, approach of this is your sector of the world, and we're not going to mess with you because you can't mess with us if we do something in South America. That's our sector of the world. That's what the superpowers did. And although we blustered and, and for our friends, we put, we, um, we sanctioned them, et cetera. And then Bitcoin was developed as an alternative way of financing uh, Russia because they realized that they might not be able to, to depend on the European system to have access to dollars. So they came up with this alternative way of financing whatever they want to do. And Putin saved for this. He knew eventually he could not allow Ukraine to stand if it continued to go in, in the direction it, it went in. This is potentially a premonitory movement toward World War III that we have to be, because at some point we, we may have to become involved militarily, either through NATO. And if you do it through NATO, Putin is, is, is crazy enough not to just back down. That's why... He brought up the nuclear arsenal immediately to let people know how far he will go. Uh, and so Biden's dilemma is how much pain will we take while he's trying to create as much pain as he can for the peoples of Russia in order to limit what I think is an inevitable military involvement. Now, I would rather, even though America may be saying vocally that Poland shouldn't be sending fighter jets across Ukrainian borders or whatever. I would rather the individual uh, countries make those decisions that are bordering that. And our decision would be, we don't necessarily, we think this is dangerous, but that's your decision, you know, kind of thing. I mean, I would probably be in their office saying, how can we help? But then publicly, I'd be saying, this isn't helping, but I, I'd rather that than NATO. And it shouldn't have been a public discussion. I mean, it's interesting how much the these decisions are becoming a public decision. I mean, no, no, the decisions are the decisions. The discussion is just a discussion. Yeah, well, I mean, Poland could have just done it. Well, they could have, and, and they might still. Well, but I think what they were hoping was that America would replace them with more modern equipment 
and that was see we're now we're just having a discussion so how do you think the russian people feel about all of this i mean obviously the oligarchs are being impacted the the russian citizens are being impacted you know i know it's not a democracy per se but they're they've had enough connections to understand what goes on in the rest of the world how do the russian people feel about the challenges that they're being held to to pick up pick up a piece of dirt don't know you might as well be asking me how I think my faculty feel about my retiring at September 1st. <laughs> I already did that. That's a different discussion. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's, it's, it's interesting because is there enough pain being generated in Russia for the people to start to stand up to the government or is it, are they so beaten down? And, and again, I'm speaking without knowledge. I'm just asking questions. Or are they so beaten down and controlled that they are afraid to take a position of any consequence against the, the uh, Russian government? Here's what I know. What I know is, is that we have had Western reporters over there who have reported both sides. Yeah. And it seems that even before he, he went into Ukraine, there were more people against it than there were for it. Mm -hmm. But there's always a silent majority that you cannot measure. And the silent majority is usually silent out of apathy or fear. And I get the impression it's fear that they did not speak. What I think is immaterial has no basis in fact. However, I do know that about two weeks ago, Putin has threatened any reporter who reports any news that contradicts the state position. That tells me that the demonstrations have a lot more support and are gathering a lot more traction than even Putin is comfortable with. That suggests to me that my suspicion that the majority of the Russian people do not want, do not want this war because the people in Ukraine are their cousins and are of uh, Slavic descent. And that tells me that he's doing what he has to do to keep the bubble from bursting. So as somebody of Slavic descent, me, whose family at least on my father's side that I, that I know of, actually came from Minsk in Belarus as part of the immigration in the late 1800s, early 1900s. I have relations that go back, obviously, a long time. And it's just, I think the comment that was in the newspaper yesterday is even Hitler didn't kill people who spoke German. Mm. And... The vast majority of the Ukrainian people speak Russian. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, I think what Putin is buying is a landmass that will have almost no population in it by the time he's done, just to act as a buffer between the NATO, NATO countries and the Russian, um, the so well, whatever they're called right now, Russia the Russian Olympic Committee. It's just scary in this day and age. I, you grew up around the same time I did during the Cold War. And I remember having to climb underneath the desks when there was air raid sirens and duck, the, duck and cover, duck and cover, you know, go out in the hallway and, and put your knees up to your chin and put your head between your legs and kiss your ass goodbye. Go down to the basement where the bomb shelter was. It brings me back to those days Maybe not as significant because I didn't understand it then. I mean, I don't know. You're a little bit older. But um, I didn't really understand what the Cold War was when I'm 
seven, eight, nine years of age. I understand it a lot more right now. Yeah, I bet. Honestly, these are not the same times. It is nowhere as threatening yet. We have better weapons and we could easily annihilate half the globe uh, if somebody does something wrong. So we should be a lot more scared than we were then. But part of that fear then was a lack of knowledge of each other. We had convinced ourselves on both sides that the other was the devil. It was a competition between the communist mode of government and the democratic mode of government. Since then, democracies supposedly won. Russia has been balkanized. Since then, you know, uh, Russia has been reduced to um, the common uh, description that they're just a nation. They're, they're, they are a, a nation-sized oil station that's being rub, run by the mob as opposed to a nation-state. They just happen to be the superpower, the other superpower. And there's a lot of geopolitics going on right now that people probably don't even think about. Honestly, right now, Ukraine is of the size that Russia cannot completely control it. And it's only hubris and hatred that drove Putin to go after the major cities. I think his job, I think his, his um, goal is to undermine the infrastructure of Ukraine, to knock them back into the 60s so that he can come in anytime he feels like it. But he doesn't have the resources to dominate, especially with the rebellious nature he's seeing now. And I don't see it getting any better. I need to do a shout out, and you may disagree, but I, I wouldn't be the first time, won't be the last. Zelensky has shown an amazing amount of leadership and an ability to keep his country together in the face of being a target, I am sure, for the Russian military and KGB and everything else. First of all, I admired him standing up to Trump a couple of years ago, and I admire the way he has tried to lead his people in the face of, of the challenges that they're dealing with. I agree, totally agree with you. He, he's going to come out of this a, a hero, dead or alive. Yeah. Um, and hopefully alive because they need his motivation. He is, I, he, he may be more effective as a martyr, but that's not what would be optimal. I understand, but I totally agree. And I, I think he has the, the visage and support of the world. However, yep. there are other, as I said, geopolitical concerns about just coming to his aid. Right now, Putin is embroiled in this mess. And so I think all he's trying to do is he wants to wipe out the Ukrainian Air Force. He wants to, he wants to knock back the uh, Ukrainian military. And I think they're, they're fighting a smart battle. Instead of taking on a superior force in traditional battles, essentially, they started with a guerrilla warfare approach, and they can last a lot longer that way. So this is going to be a lot like Afghanistan, except that it's not going to be in the mountains. It's going to be in the cities. Unfortunately that plays into Putin's hands in terms of destroying infrastructure to make it difficult. And that's why you're going to have a vacuum within Ukraine when it comes to population. But they can always backfill. They can backfill a lot easier to rebuild, but he can always knock them down as soon as, as he wants. But he's vulnerable right now. Right now, if we really wanted to, all of his forces are stretched out through Ukraine. This, this would be the time to join in if that's what we wanted to do. But there's another super superpower on the side that 
forms a balance of power in this on this globe that we have to think about. If we blindly just jump in and say, we're your friends and this is what we're going to do, then we could create a whole nother power shift that I'm not sure we're prepared for. China's just sitting on the side waiting to see what's going to happen. They're being hurt the least while our economy is undergoing rampant inflation because we were becoming uh, codependent on Russian oil. We hadn't gotten there yet. We were actually oil independent at the end of Obama's years. While I was in Vegas, I stopped at a store and this guy was ranting and raving about the uh, oil pipeline that was shut down by Biden when he took over as president. And, bl- and he was blaming that as the reason for gas going up. Well, first of all, I didn't think that pipeline was going to be finished until 26. So I don't understand how that pipeline has any impact on today's price of gas. And it's funny how everything becomes a bad issue, becomes a political ploy, and we just ignore the real, the real cause. Absolutely. That, that was a complete political statement. I think it was the keystone that they were talking about. It's interesting to hear the positive lean from some of the politicians towards Putin and even from Fox News. It's like, can you imagine back in, in the 60s with Khrushchev having anybody in support of Khrushchev back in the 60s and, and maybe even uh, Gorbachev to a degree until he talk, tore down the wall? I mean, it's like, where are we when we are in support of a despot who's killing innocent people and bombing maternity hospitals and saying, you know, he's not that bad a guy? I mean, what does that tell you about our political system? Well, uh, nothing more than it did when uh, Obama won and they said they wanted him to fail. It, it told me that certain patriots are not patriots anymore when their biases are offended. And at this point, that they can take their biases so far, or they've already taken their biases so far that patriotism either takes on a new hood or it becomes secondary to the the reattainment of superiority so that they can protect their bias. The fact that a Black man is so offensive, a Black man in the presidential seat is so offensive that we now want America to fail is a new type of patriotism to me. And yet you expect Black men to fight in the army for patriotism. So I have another question. I know you just came back from the veterinary medical college dean's meeting. Has anybody reached out to the veterinary schools in the Ukraine to see if there's anything you can do for the veterinary students who are there? Yes. So AAVFC sent a strong letter of support for the veterinary school in Ukraine. But the veterinary school in Ukraine is closed and there's not much we can do to get into there. I mean, as a school, as a school, it's no, uh, it is not an integral unit right now. I mean, the university is closed. Everybody is, this is when, this is when infrastructure falls apart, right? When there are bombs falling, if, if the university, if anything is open in a in a university, they're shielding people, they're feeding people, and they're relying on their own resources, except, and they're relying on whatever can come in from the borders. Now, Maybe as 
veterinary schools, we could try to figure out, we could find out if anybody is working on the borders that could divert food and clothing to the university. But that's about as far as you could control it. You know, and why would you do that when the best way to do it is to let the government do what they're doing and and maybe donate to the Red Cross? No, it was just a thought. I mean, it, it's anything we can do to help the people in any way, shape or form. It is also interesting how we are always so good about helping others, but we don't yeah. always focus on helping even within our own borders. Yeah, so. yeah. I agree totally, but at the same time, um, as I said, you know, you sometimes have to decide that that fire, you know, it's it. This is this goes back to the reason I keep bringing up the fire. This goes back to if my neighbor's house is burning, mm -hmm. I want to put it out before mine catches fire. If nothing else, you know, that's why that's what Poland said. Poland said the reason they're taking all these refugees is because they realize they're next in line. That Ukrainian is fighting. You, is fighting their fight yeah and so this is so there's a self-interest here you know unfortunately i don't think this is going to be the last time we talk about this issue no it's not it's not i mean look if if putin were to stop would decide were to decide this isn't worth it today it would take another month for him to pull his troops out which gives him another month to cause devastation and war crimes while he's pulling out well he will do anything to not to not lose face and that's what we're trying to deal with right now anything like lie in the un about how this got started exactly and uh, and i'm sure that uh he took some papers from his office to his home someplace as well that should have been <laughs> in the archives <laughs> oh he doesn't have to do that no yeah. he, he owns this place that was a passive aggressive comment, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Well, I think we solved all the world's problems and now we have peace in the Ukraine, right? Unfortunately, we don't. I haven't heard your position. Do you think we might one day that this is going to come to a military involvement for either NATO or the United States? I'm sorry, I'm not asking you to predict. I'm asking you, do you think we should? That's a, that's a different question. I think we need to get Putin out of power and how we do that whether it is through um, somehow getting past the guards at the Kremlin or wherever he's holed up or getting a coup in Russia, I think we need to get Putin out of power because I don't think that this will be the end once he gets out of Ukraine. You delayed the question. Yeah, well, I'm thinking which direction I want to go with it. Um, I, I would love to see the ability to not have to have Americans, any more Americans die, an unending battle like we dealt with in Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, Vietnam. Unfortunately, I don't see how we can avoid it in this situation if we are truly standing up for what we believe in as the world superpower and a democracy. The humanitarian crisis is crying for us to help. And I think we have to do something, even if it means taking some risks. So uh, I believe that one of the reasons Putin went into Ukraine is because he figured we don't have the 
taste for war anymore after coming out of Afghanistan in the public shaming that we took after spending $10 billion and it just drops in three days. It just falls in three days. So there's definitely no, there doesn't appear to be any taste for that. I think any support is further drained by the economic challenges we're having right now as a result, primarily with uh, uh, gas prices. However, having said that, I think everybody realizes we have a despot on the rampage. And the only way you can control a despot is through force. Ukrainian can make it hurt and make it painful. But I think everybody expects that uh, eventually they will lose without significant support. I actually think that America can provide air power the same way Clinton did with Kosovo, air power only. The problem with that is it sounds like a clean war and you have to be prepared to decide what you're going to do when you have a down plane, down pallets, et cetera. You also have to be prepared that Putin will polarize the issue even further and go after the individual nations. That's why I think it has to be done through NATO rather than as America, because NATO has the greater burden, essentially, of preventing escalation to Europe, as well as having members on the border of Ukraine that they need to protect. And so it's, it's a lot easier to justify it, as well as for the human, humanitarian reasons. There may come a point where we can actually provide humanitarian relief, and our contribution would be through air power. Roosevelt waited a long time to get into the war in Europe in spite of Churchill's requests multiple times. And it took attack on Pearl Harbor to bring the United States into World War II. I don't know if we can wait that long, but I think that's the same machinations that Biden is going through right now is what's the red line that needs to be crossed before we and NATO take that action. Let's be clear. So we didn't wait that long to get into World War II. The attack on Lusitania led us into the German war. It was the attack on Pearl Harbor that led us into waging war against Japan. So we got into the European part of World War II a lot sooner because of the attack of Lusitania and uh, Britain's urging for us. And depending on who you read and, and, and who you depend on, part of it was changing our economy to a war economy before we moved into it. Was that World War One or World War Two at the Lusitania? Because I thought the Lusitania was what got us into World War One. I. I may be mistaken. Because it was, the sinking actually took place in the mid-1910s. Okay, then you're right. So we got into World War one as a result of Lusitania, but it really took um, it took Pearl Harbor. We were not in World War II until after Pearl Harbor. Okay, my my historical mistake. <laughs> um, anyhow, was did your dad serve in the military? No, neither did mine. It was he was four F for whatever reason it was. Plus he was in school. My dad uh, had flat feet. So did mine. Maybe we have <laughs> the same dad. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Twin sons of different mothers. Yeah. Well, I don't know. For some reason, these talks seem very sad. We need to we need to have an upbeat talk sometime. <laughs> but maybe yeah, that's just the nature of things right now. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, these talks started with some sad. True. Talks. 
right? And I guess maybe we're just getting tired of talking about sad topics. All right. All right. Have a good week. All right. Talk to you later. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. I just want to take a minute to thank uh, Nationwide for their support and continue to appreciate their support that they provide, not just for our podcast, but for the entire veterinary profession. And we look forward to having them as part of our team for the coming year. Thank you for joining us for another Courageous Conversation. Be sure to follow us and check back next week for more.